part of what I'm hoping to do is to illustrate that there are connections between disciplines that are often seen as completely separate Mm -hmm. and that it's okay and exciting to be motivated and curious about different areas. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. This, at some level, is also a show about connecting dots. Certainly a show that comes of connecting dots, about having a rough idea that connects to a more fully formed concept, that turns into a search for someone who knows something, that yields a date, an outline, and a meeting of two minds in dialogue, in mutual discovery. Like curiosity itself, these are conversations that believe there is promise in the unknown. Today, we take those dots and their connection to a whole new level. So here's a set of dots for you. John Dewey was an American philosopher, psychologist, and educational reformer whose ideas have been influential for more than a hundred years. In 1916, he wrote in his book, Democracy and Education, Curiosity is not an accidental, isolated possession. It is a necessary consequence of the fact that an experience is a moving, changing thing involving all kinds of connections with other things. Curiosity is but the tendency to make these conditions perceptible. In other words, knowledge is a perception of those connections of an object which determines its applicability in a given situation. Thus, we get a new event indirectly instead of immediately by invention, ingenuity, resourcefulness. An ideally perfect knowledge would represent such a network of interconnections that any past experience would offer a point of advantage from which to get at the problem presented in a new experience. Was John Dewey prescient? Did he anticipate where our understanding of networks might actually go? Could he imagine the elegant graphs and diagrams we now enjoy of our brains functioning? Those rainbow-colored maps of whizzing synapses and neurological connectivity? I don't know, but I imagine he'd have been delighted. My guest, Danielle Bassett, knows a thing or two about those tantalizing images. Danny is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where they study biological, physical, and social systems by using and developing tools for network science and complex systems theory. Danny seeks to isolate problems at the intersection of basic science, engineering, and clinical medicine that can be tackled using systems levels approach. They quote John Dewey a lot. Danny is most well-known for their work blending neural and systems engineering to identify fundamental mechanisms of cognition and disease in human brain networks. And they are the founding director of the Penn Network Visualization Project, a combined undergraduate art internship and K-12 outreach program bridging network science and the visual arts. Small wonder Dandy is also a contributing author to the anthology Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge, where they write on network science and the practice of curiosity. One of the many things I have come to appreciate and admire about Danny's work is the skill with which they talk about it with the rest of us. So welcome, Danny. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So let me ask you, when and how did you first know you were curious? 
That's a good question. So maybe going back quite early, I was homeschooled from kindergarten through 12th grade. And at the beginning of each year, my mother would ask me what I would like to study that year. So every year, my studies were sort of a relatively deep dive into a narrow domain of knowledge guided by my current interests. Fast forward then to about 2004, when I had just finished or was finishing my undergraduate education and interviewing for PhD positions. I vividly remember the faculty interviewer at one of these institutions paging through my application materials and noting, you know, I had a degree in physics, I had a minor in mathematics, I had honors in physical chemistry, I had done research in avant-garde Japanese literature, in poetry, and in physical chemistry. So she listed these points to me and then she looked me straight in the eye (laughs) and she said, are you ready to settle down now? Uh And I remember feeling quite confused because I thought that these broad and deep interests were something of value. And I was wondering, was it really true that a curiosity of this type would hold me back in a scientific Mm. career? But I was also fairly sure that I couldn't necessarily turn it off. Uh So I was a bit stuck. (laughs) So your practice of curiosity was kind of a category bender from the beginning. A bit, a bit, yeah, a bit. And I think I think that notion that curiosity can come in many different sorts is one that is is probably well appreciated. And my experience is not necessarily unusual. Many of us come to realize that different people value different kinds of curiosity, and and some people value and think that one will be more useful for scientific discovery than others. So you're a physicist and a mathematician, what took you to curiosity? Yeah. (laughs) I think what took me to curiosity is the observation that there's a problem in defining the sorts of ways in which we search for knowledge. Mm. And that perhaps the, the understanding of curiosity could be benefited by a scientific and mathematical approach, and that maybe the tools and the conceptions that we have in mathematics and and physics and other areas of science are useful for understanding curiosity, which most people would consider to be more in the space of the humanities than the space of the sciences. Right. So talk us through how you brought your tools to that conversation. So I think if we go to the area of how do we define curiosity and ask the question of whether science and mathematics can help us to do that, we have to come up with a few definitions of what curiosity actually is. So to some, curiosity is perhaps the love of trivia, yet we can all think of people that we deem quite curious who are not necessarily quite interested in trivia, right? (laughs) And to others, curiosity is the asking of many questions. But also many of us know children or adults who may be more introverted or more shy who may not openly ask questions in public, but perhaps search for answers to their internal questions in other ways. Right, right. right? So curiosity can't necess- is not necessarily the love of trivia. It's also not necessarily the asking of questions. I think a key open challenge for us is to develop an approach to curiosity that allows us to talk meaningfully about these really diverse types as a continuum or something that encompasses all of the diverse manifestations of curiosity that mm-hmm. we see around us. I think that one relatively exciting solution to this problem is to reconceptualize curiosity as the seeking of 
information links. So it's not necessarily the seeking of individual information bits, but the seeking of information links. So it's not so much the dots as the connection. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I like this. Yes. I like this. And, and so why? You can think about your everyday life. So why do you finish the book that you just started last mm-hmm. night, for example? Or why do you binge watch a show? Or why do you ask people a series of questions, new people, a series of questions perhaps because you want to understand their uh, the backstory of their life? In each of these cases, what you're seeking is that understanding and that satisfaction of how one piece of information relates uh-huh. to another piece of information, right? So... In my work, I think I want to formalize that idea of information linking and that our curiosity is our style of information linking. You mentioned in the introduction this wonderful quote from John Dewey about how knowledge itself can be thought of as of a network of interconnected concepts. Right. And so when we're seeking knowledge, we're seeking not just information as bits, the way that it's commonly thought of. And so what I what I find particularly interesting about that is in network science you talked about nodes you talk about nodes and edges, right? So the nodes mm-hmm. are the bits mm-hmm. <laughs> and the edges are the connections, right? right? Okay. Yeah. So what's been percolating for me in thinking about this from your work is that I think sometimes we kind of throw an edge out there with no node ah, in mind. Do you think so? I mean if we're sort of fishing around for where something goes. Yes. Are we building a network dot to dot or dot to edge to mm. eventual dot? Mm. That's a good point. Certainly we don't always know this, what it is specifically we're searching for. Right. But we might know the direction in which we uh, think it'll, okay. it will be. Yeah, yeah. So I like the idea of just extending an edge. It indicates that you know there's a connection to there, but right. you don't know what's at the other what the, end. What that right. connection might it be. might be. But a confidence yeah. that there's something out there. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So where does this take us? So the fact that knowledge itself can be thought of as a network, and even science itself can be thought of as a network as well, I think motivates our our drive to yeah. find information. Yeah. So in, similar to John Dewey, Henri Poincaré in his Science and Hypothesis from um, 1902 said that the aim of science, which is the field that I really love, is not things themselves, so not these units themselves as the dogmatists in their simplicity imagine, but the relations among these things. Outside these relations, there is no reality knowable. This is my edge theory. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I guess an interesting question is, you know, we can say that knowledge is a network, but having an, a picture in our mind is sometimes useful yeah. to understand what it, what it is that we mean when we say that knowledge is a network. So commonly, I think people m- most frequently come up against or, or interpret or in, engage with ideas of networks in social contexts. Right. I think that's the easy model. So in social networks, and it may be just in your own personal interactions with people, or it could also be through social media like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it happens to be, there are these illustrations of networks where a person is the node in the network, Mm -hmm. that's the unit, and then friendships are the links Mm -hmm. between people. Mm -hmm. And in that context, it's easy for us to visualize that, that each of us creates or engages with a different kind of network architecture. So some of us have small networks. We have a few friends. Right. Some of us have very large networks. We have many friends. Some of us have networks that have 
what we call modular structure, which means that you may have a group of friends that are in one part of your life and a separate group of sure. friends from another part of your life. And so that creates a very different architecture to mm-hmm. the, or structure to mm-hmm. the network or form to it. And then inside of the network, there are also hubs. So people who have many friendships with mm-hmm. lots of other mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that each of us creates or engages with I think both these different architectures around us. And I think that those visuals are very useful when we start to think about curiosity and yeah. the kind of knowledge that we're seeking to build and how that might differ among us. So talk a little bit about how it might differ among us. I mean, what are the kinds of network architecture that might evolve? So when I am being curious, perhaps I gather information, bits of information, and then I want to connect them up or link them because that makes me feel this understanding and the satisfaction. And so perhaps I want to link them in a way that every new piece of information I find, I bring back to something that I already know and that I care about a lot. So Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about music. Mm -hmm. And every time I search for new information, I always bring it back to how does this relate to Brahms piano concertos or you know whatever it happens to be so that would create a relatively hub-like or hub-and-spoke architecture Uh where all of the new information comes back to a solitary single point alternatively perhaps I create an architecture where I don't mind moving into a new space, but I always want to connect nearby ideas to each other. So I love to fill in triangles. I don't like to leave any gaps in my understanding. Uh Or perhaps I'm the sort of person that doesn't mind gaps in understanding as long as I'm moving into a new space. And I'm more excited about moving into a new space than closing the gaps. And in each of these scenarios, the architecture that you end up building can be quite different. Some of them look more web-like, sort of what a spider would create. Others are more lattice like like crystals would organize. So that's the way in which we can create different knowledge spaces, network spaces. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and my guest today is University of Pennsylvania professor Danny Bassett. We're talking about applying network systems to curiosity. So that also sounds as if we as individuals likely have different sorts of network styles, different network architecture is kind of context dependent. I guess that maybe answers the question that I had percolating as you were starting to speak is whether or not we each as individuals have essentially the equivalent of a network fingerprint, Mm. that our curiosity network style is unique to us. Does that seem... Yes. 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 <laughs> that is my hypothesis, definitely. Uh-huh. And I think some of the work that we're doing at the moment is to try to understand whether there are canonical types of curiosity and, and curious knowledge network building, but that doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't preclude there being massive and individual differences along a continuum as well. What yeah. we're asking is whether there are a couple common styles. And to the point of the curiosity studies and the idea that maybe there is a practice of curiosity that could be taught or modeled mm-hmm. or something, are you finding kind of practices or structures that do facilitate curiosity in your mind? That's a great question, and that's an area that we are actively pursuing. And in fact, I think probably the most important direction that our work is going right now is to increase our understanding of how these individual differences in 
creating knowledge networks impacts education. So mm. how do we mm -hmm. model curious practice to someone else? But then also, how do we present a knowledge network that's true to the real domain, mm -hmm. right? So there's this really interesting intersection between how do I accurately present the information and the connections between concepts that must be there? How do they, and how do I choose which ones to show and which ones not to show? But also then how do I illustrate and model the curious practice right. on top of the knowledge that I'm presenting? I really, I wanted to share this wonderful story from a book I read recently called Landmarks from Robert McFarlane, mm. who's a fantastic British uh, nature writer. And he recalls inviting one of his mentors, Roger Deakin, to Cambridge University to give a lecture on uh -huh. his topic. And Roger Deakin studied UK waterways. That was his, his subject. And so Robert remembers inviting him, and this is what he says, and I'll just quote it because it's too wonderful not to. <laughs> he says, I stared dedicatedly at my shoes, embarrassed that my friend was failing to perform in front of my academic peers. It was only later that I realized it wasn't a failure to perform, but a refusal to conform. Cambridge seminars expect rigor and logic from their speakers, abraced subtlety of exposition and explanation, tested proofs of cause and consequence. But water, which was Roger's subject, uh -huh. doesn't do rigor in that sense, <laughs> and neither did Roger, though his writing was often magnificently precise in his poetry. For Roger, water flowed fast and wildly through culture. It was protean, it was slipshape, and so that was how he followed it. Slipshod and shipshape at once, moving from a word here to an idea there, pursuing water's influence too fast for his notes or audience to keep up with, uh -huh. joining his watery subjects by means of an invisible network of tunnels and drains. And I love this passage just yes. because the way yeah. in which he's speaking illustrates the architecture of the knowledge that he's transmitting. And so he's, he's simultaneously illustrating the architecture of water, but he's also illustrating the curious way in which he has followed it over the years, just in the manner in which he's speaking. Right. Um, right. And I think that we face that that uh, that sort of challenge every day when I uh, get up to lecture at Penn, or even when we converse with one another. How do we share the true architecture of the knowledge we're hoping to transmit, but also sort of sprinkle it with a good douse of, of the curious practice that we want to model as well? Right, right. So so let me follow up on this, because you've you've raised an example of a, a mentor relationship and and you write in your chapter about mentorship and apprenticeship as maybe a way of sort of advancing and facilitating curiosity and I I thought oh this is such an interesting concept when we think about sort of well how might we teach or model curiosity talk for a moment about your own experience in kind of curiosity and mentorship? Mm. I think going back to the example that I gave from um, my childhood, I think that it was certainly modeled to me mm -hmm. that I could be curious yeah. about anything, yeah. that I could choose topics that I was interested in. And now I think as, as we, in the position that I have as a researcher and professor at Penn, I want to give that kind of freedom mm -hmm. also to students who are choosing the research directions that mm -hmm. they are seeking to pursue. One way that I do try to illustrate 
curiosity in a, in a slightly different way is the way that I give lectures when I go around and talk about the scientific work that we do. Mm-hmm. I often sprinkle it with quotations from literature or philosophy or um, yes, you are the fiction embodiment books of a wide <laughs> network in uh, your writings. It's wonderful. But I yeah. think, and some people have questioned why? Why do you why do you put a, a quote from the fiction book you read last week in your scientific mm-hmm. lecture? And I think part of what I'm hoping to do is to illustrate that there are connections between disciplines that are often seen as completely separate Mm -hmm. and that it's okay and exciting to be motivated and curious about different areas and that sometimes some of the best ideas that happen in science are inspired not necessarily from a previous scientific result but by something else. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned in your in your chapter is this idea of being able to do sort of short-term research of kind of people's curiosity and networks, but also this idea of doing something more retrospective, looking at the evolving thinking of someone in their work. And I I just have to ask, is there somebody you would like to do that on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard to choose. You don't have to choose just one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in, uh, in general, in a, a group of, of scientists who have worked very, on, very carefully at the very beginning of their career and then may have faced some challenges in terms of mental health towards the end of their career. Mm. Um, and w- watching and understanding from their writing how that may have impacted the transmission mm. of ideas. And in fact, it doesn't have to be scientists. It could be John Ruskin, for example, who writes on modern painting or what was modern painting at the time. Um, and there's just a very interesting progression from highly structured and ordered thought through to something that's much freer, um, much more sort of fewer rules that is illustrative of a change in the mental processes that are occurring. And so that's one scenario that I'd be very interested in. And that's partially because I'm also very interested in mental health and understanding the precursors of changes in mental health. Right. Um, So what are you studying? I mean, where are you going with this? What are you looking at now or next? Right now, we're very excited to try to understand how we present knowledge networks to students Mm -hmm. as they are learning and how perhaps we could match that presentation to their own curious styles. So I'm, I'm really curious about how... I can present a network of knowledge behind the subject that I am teaching. Mm. How can I present it in a way that makes that knowledge maximally learnable versus not so maximally learnable? (laughs) We can all remember the professor in college who may have presented it in not a particularly learnable way for for us. How do I walk through the concepts? Which links should I emphasize? Which links should I not emphasize? So in the lab, we're currently performing just a whole set of experiments where we present information to human volunteers in, in different ways on different kinds of network architectures. So some presentations are quite dense, others are a little more sparse, some presentations are more modular, we go through a set of interconnected ideas Mm. before Mm -hmm. moving to another one, Um, and other presentations are more circular. So we start somewhere, we go through a path, and then we come back to where we started. Our question is which of these network architectures underneath the presentation helps somebody to learn better? 
So that's that's an area I'm very excited about. But I also think that it's important to complement those highly stylized laboratory experiments with an examination of something that happens in the real world Mm -hmm. regularly. Mm -hmm. So we've also been studying written texts that have been constructed with the purpose of sharing knowledge. And specifically, those are college level textbooks that we are that we're studying. What we're seeking to do is to understand how and why concepts are presented in a very specific order Mm. and how and why certain links between concepts are shown while others are completely ignored. And of course, how and why isn't necessarily the same thing as whether or not they're successful. (laughs) Very true, right. 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 And so we are also um, gathering ratings of each of these Uh. textbooks as well to see if we can understand whether the textbooks that are rated more highly or used more frequently in the uh-huh. college setting are ones that present the information mm, in a particular fascinating, way. Fascinating. It would be interesting to discover that, in fact, we've been doing this wrong for a long time. <laughs> I suspect in some regards we really have. It's it's possible. <laughs> I mean, I, I do know I have a lot of respect for work in education, research yeah. in education, and so it's also possible that we have been doing it in a fine way, but it hasn't the the choice of how to construct these ideas hasn't been formalized and explained mathematically and that what I'm hoping is that we can formalize that conversation a little bit more and then hopefully once it's formalized it can be optimized further. Right well you can imagine that there are that there are structures that would be sort of optimal for the species if not optimal for the individual. Absolutely yeah yes yes and so I'm very interested in people who either learn in a diversity in learning styles Mm -hmm. or individuals who have learning deficits and Mm -hmm. then how do we link up the presentation of that network of knowledge to the way that that person thinks. Mm -hmm. So do you have curiosity practices of your own? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I think that at the moment I'm pretty fairly obsessed with this idea of walking through networks. Uh-huh. Um, I love this metaphor. I, yeah. <laughs> that really um, resonates for I me guess, as a I walker. Guess going through um, with the back to the idea of Roger Deakin, we could also be swimming through waterways perhaps. Uh-huh. Um, but I think uh-huh. I'm, I'm more of a walker than a swimmer. So one of my favorite ways to enact this walk is the way that I read books. So I often choose a book and I really love books with epigraphs or quotations mm-hmm. at the beginning of chapters or at the beginning of the book that set the stage for Mm -hmm. the ideas presented. And then I will choose my next book based on those epigraphs or based on quotations inside of the previous book. And so I just walk through books that have quoted one another. So basically what I'm doing is walking on an inter-book quotation network. (laughs) 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 It's a rarefied category. It's it's so much fun. And I never know where it will take me. So Uh maybe it'll be through fiction or nonfiction. Could be through poetry or plays. Could be um, through sciences or the humanities or it could be from work today through to millennia uh-huh. ago. Uh-huh. So to me, it's not necessarily where I go, but the actual act of the walk that I think is important. And I'm actually reminded of Stephen Graham's The Gentle Art of Tramping. I don't know if you've read it from no. 1926. Yes. Wonderful book. Having this to my list. Where he poo-poos trampers, or yeah. what we would now call hikers, who focus on walking swiftly or reaching the highest heights. And instead, he reminds us that tramping is really more what you see along the way. It's the time that's spent watching. Yeah. It's the sort of presence, the just being. And I think in my meandering walks through these interbook quotation networks, I'm just out really to enjoy the walk. You 
you've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us here today. Many thanks to my guest, Danny Bassett. You can find links to their work and the whole Curiosity Studies collection and all my previous shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, go ahead, connect the dots, choose to be curious. Thank you.